You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with breaking news. The jury in the Miles Gray inquest has returned with its recommendations. Gray died after suffering severe injuries in an altercation with police in August of 2015. Our Kristen Robinson has been following this story and joins us with the breaking details. And Kristen, that jury has also ruled Gray's death was a homicide. Sophie, that's right. After deliberating for just over five hours today, the five-person coroner's jury returned with a verdict classifying Miles Gray's death as a homicide. The cause, cardiopulmonary arrest complicated by police restraining him. Now, the jury made three recommendations to prevent similar deaths in the future, two directed at the chief constable of the BPD to expedite the implementation of body cameras for all officers and to review and enhance de-escalation training. The third was for the head of the Provincial Health Services Authority to review the handling of toxicology samples. The lawyer for Gray's family says the jury's verdict of homicide is significant. As I understand the evidence before we started, the police position, the position of the VPD has always been that the death was, uh, in effect, natural causes. And I think the verdict, from my perspective, the jury's verdict puts an end to that. We know what the cause of death was. We heard it from the forensic pathologist, and the jury endorsed and accepted that. So that's an important event. Now, the conclusions from the inquest end an almost eight-year journey for Miles Gray's family. What began with a 911 call about an agitated man who had sprayed a woman with a garden hose ended with Miles Gray dying after a violent confrontation with Vancouver police. The seven officers involved, the only witnesses to what happened in a Burnaby backyard on August 13th, 2015. I'm going to just try and power through it. Almost eight years later, Margie Gray's long drive for answers culminated with a coroner's inquest into the death of her 33-year-old son. He's challenging us to fight with us. Seven VPD officers testified they used pepper spray, kicks, punches, chokeholds and baton strikes to subdue Gray, who they described as animalistic with superhuman strength. Gray suffered a fractured eye socket, nose and rib, crushed voice box, ruptured testicles and other injuries. Most officers said they couldn't recall any visible injuries or blood on Gray. In contrast, firefighters and paramedics testified the patient was black and blue and bleeding. One saying Gray was so badly beaten, he didn't think he was a white guy. He's not responding. A toxicologist testified Gray's post-mortem revealed no alcohol and no confirmed drugs. He was likely experiencing an acute behavioral disturbance, said a pathologist, who told the inquest Gray died of cardiopulmonary arrest, complicated by police actions to restrain him. I don't think he would have died when he did, had it not been for the police interaction on that day, Dr. Matthew Ord testified. As a mother, like, that is what I needed out there, is the truth, and... The pathologist spoke the truth. The toxicologist spoke the truth. The Gray family's lawyer says the new revelations should force the Crown to reconsider criminal charges. Is there a sound reason uh, from my perspective to look at this case again and make a fresh decision? Yes. Only one officer testified he took notes after the incident. Others told the inquest they were advised not to by their union. None of the officers cooperated with BC's police watchdog. 
So what's next? As you heard, Ian Donaldson there saying he hopes the criminal case will be reopened, while an OPCC discipline proceeding in Gray's death is still ongoing and could result in the dismissal of the seven VPD officers who remain on active duty. Sophie? All right, thanks for that. Kristen Robinson with that breaking news uh, from the coroner's inquest this evening. Well, the ongoing saga of who will police the city of Surrey is going to drag on for at least another month. Mayor Brenda Locke wants staff and council to review the provincial government report and recommendation to move forward with the SPS. And as Janet Brown reports, she's also considering a citywide referendum on the issue. I want the public to know that Surrey is a a safe place and they need not be concerned about public safety in the city of Surrey at this time. Shocked about Surrey's mayor that. says she has asked staff to review the province's roughly 500 page report with the recommendation to keep the independent municipal police force. She says that review could take about a month. So we have to do it right and we have to do it thoroughly and I expect that of my staff. And Locke is asked about putting the issue to a referendum. Right now I'm ruling it out, but I can tell you all, everything is on the table. The uh, minister basically gave us a blank, a blank uh, paper, and so we have to look at what we have to do moving forward. And she continues to stand firm to keep the RCMP. Right now that's the decision of council and that is where we land. For now, despite the controversy, Locke has no plans to meet with either Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth or Premier David Eby. Meanwhile, Safe Surrey Coalition Councillor Mandeep Nagra says he is considering bringing forward a notice of motion to council asking for yet another vote on policing. I am pretty sure that you know some of the councillors will look at moving uh, SPS forward in City of Surrey. At the same time, he agrees with Locke having city staff review for the next month or so the province's report. It's very important for the staff to go through any of the concerns they have, any of the questions they have, so we can go back to the minister and you know address those concerns. So, so I think month is a very reasonable timeline as long as you know we have both the police departments working together. Resolving this seems very, very far away. Would that be a correct assumption? It feels like it's a whole new chapter of the same book. <laughs> Janet Brown, Global News. All right, Keith Baldry joins us with more on the fallout. Uh, Keith, the Premier addressed the issue as well today. What did he have mm. to say? Yeah, things, I think, the rhetoric sort of tampened down today. Things seem to be a little calmer than the explosion that occurred on Friday. Uh, we caught up with uh, Premier David Eby today. Very unusual. Usually he does not have a scrum before question period, but we were told no. He hasn't waded into this controversy since Friday, so the first time to meet with reporters. And again, talking about a meeting being set up between uh, Brenda Locke and Council and ministry officials and perhaps himself. And one of the key things is the entire report is going to be given to the Council, not just the pages that right now are look like this in many places. This is a redacted page, about 350 pages redacted out of a more than 500 page report. And the promise is there to give the full report to council and nothing to be redacted. Here's the premier. I've had the opportunity to have a couple conversations with the mayor of Surrey. Um, they've been constructive conversations and uh, the uh, one of the pieces of work that's coming out of that is uh, there'll be a briefing for uh, mayor and council, uh, an opportunity to review the full uh, unredacted report, of course, so that they have all of the information that they need for their deliberations. 
So not clear when this meeting is going to take place. Sophie's interesting in Janet's story, Mayor Locke talking about a month-long process to review this document. So perhaps the meeting becomes uh, near the end of that process, maybe at the beginning or sometime in the middle. We haven't got a date set yet. And it continues. Thanks for that, Keith. Well, the second day of evidence at the trial of the man accused of first-degree murder in the death of a young teenage girl whose body was found in Burnaby Central Park. Ramina Dea has the details and another unexpected development in the trial. The police dog handler was only in the forest for a matter of seconds before he started screaming frantically for an ambulance, saying no, no, no. He was extremely distraught. Testified Burnaby RCMP Staff Sergeant Stacy Rogers. Rogers has asked that her image be protected because of the nature of her current position. The officer told the jury the young Asian female located in Burnaby Central Park was pale, lying on her back facing the sky, her pants unbuttoned. The teen's identity is protected by a publication ban. Crown says Ibrahim Ali strangled the girl to death in the course of sexually assaulting her. Ali has pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder. Defense counsel Kevin McCulloch once again raising the issue of a mystery man in the forest that pitch black night who told another officer he was part of a film crew, spectators also on scene. Defense says the quality of the police investigation is at stake. McCulloch questioning why for hours no effort was made to identify witnesses or perpetrators in the park. Rogers told the jury they needed to secure the park rather than try to figure out who's there. An unexpected ending to Monday's proceedings, the trial ending early after defense counsel Ben Linsky stood before the judge and jury and told them Ali has a headache. He can't tolerate it any longer. He's asking to lay down. The trial continues Tuesday. Romina Day on Global News. Now, a shocking experience for a group of friends on a birthday getaway. They were staying at an Airbnb in Seashell when they made a concerning discovery inside the bathroom. As Travis Prasad reports, now they're warning others about what they found. What should have been a fun weekend away to celebrate Jamie Gladman's birthday quickly took a dark turn. It was a weird way to ring in my 30s and my 30th yeah. birthday. Like Gladman booked an Airbnb in Seashelt for mid-March. One day into the stay, one of her friends felt the need to check for cameras. She had just watched a video, I think the day before, kind of talking about hidden cameras and how small they are and how they can be found anywhere, like in a shower head, in an outlet. Following her instincts, that night she checked the entire house, including the bathroom. Her friends watched and recorded as she unscrewed the cover of an electrical outlet that wasn't working. Upon closer inspection, it does look like a small lens, honestly. The group found what they believed to be a tiny video camera. The lens pointing directly at the shower. We were just kind of in shock and like didn't want to believe it. We didn't know what to do. It's the middle, you know, middle of nowhere, middle of the night. Like, what are we supposed to do? The group checked out the next morning and reported it to police. Airbnb confirms the listing has been suspended for now, saying we ban hidden cameras and previously refunded the guest as we investigate this allegation. We just found out we were being watched in our Airbnb. Caldwell posted a video about the ordeal on TikTok. It's gone viral with more than 6 million views. So many people are saying, like, now they're going to look out for this sort of thing and be more careful, which I'm glad I could help spread the word about that. Global News contacted the Sunshine Coast RCMP for details, but no one was available for comment. Mounties did confirm with local media they are investigating a report of cameras at a short-term rental.
So the moral of the story is always check your outlets for cameras at your Airbnb. Meanwhile, Caldwell has contacted a lawyer to see what legal action can be taken against whoever's behind the camera. Travis Prasad, Global News. A reprieve for young families living in some strata properties in B.C. who otherwise would have had to move if they wanted to have kids or get married. The province is now changing the rules for buildings that adopt 55-plus age restrictions, protecting those who already live there. Krista Dow reports. It has been an exhausting journey for Razan Talibian over the past few months, but now the mother-to-be can finally breathe a sigh of relief. It's great. I'm, I'm really happy that now we have no stress about first, second, third child. Talibian and her husband now legally allowed to stay in their Maple Ridge townhouse as the province announced changes to 55-plus buildings, meaning people won't have to move out if their family status changes. We know that, uh, you know, Having a starting a new family can be both exciting and also very stressful. And, and losing your home because you're starting a family is one stress that we want to eliminate. Housing Minister Ravi Kalon says current homeowners will be grandfathered in and can have kids or get married without fear of violating strata bylaws. People are scared to go against their strata or speak out apparently. So. So that's that's what prompted me to actually speak out. In February, Talibian was told she would have to sell her home as her building moved to 55 plus. And while the couple could stay, no future children would be allowed. The expectant couple considered moving out but dreaded the challenges ahead. I already lost so much on the worth of the house because it's now 55 plus. It was more than just moving. It was financial debt stress, mental health illness. The changes are retroactive and will allow for any changes down the road. If we have people who are 55 plus who choose to adopt a child, uh, they should be able to uh, be able to stay in that unit. And so that's why the changes reflect all that. After seeing years of people fighting for it and nothing been changed, and I feel so bad for those, those families that had to endeavor that, I'm just so grateful. Talibian now able to focus on being a new mom when her baby arrives in September. Krista Dow, Global News. The big melt is on. After record heat over the weekend and a warmer spring ahead, communities are already preparing for spring flooding. Who could get the worst of it next on the News Hour? There's millions of children who need our help. The 104-year-old veteran proving it's never too late to help others. That's later on the news hour. Also tonight, startling video of yet another overheight vehicle smashing into a lower mainland overpass. That's still to come. First, though, with river levels rising rapidly, a local state of emergency is in effect in Cache Creek. Last night, one family was forced to leave their home. As Kamala Karamali reports, higher temperatures and snowmelt are causing concern in several parts of the province. Cache Creek now turning into a raging river. Flowing over its banks, forcing its way through this property, prompting the village of Cash Creek to issue a local state of emergency Sunday and evacuate this one home and its one resident. He uh, isn't always pleased with what the village does, and I would guess that he's not pleased with being ordered out of his property. The city says the home's occupant is safe, now other neighboring residents watching closely. You can hear rocks rolling down that sucker, man. It's unreal. 
So as you can see, the creek runs directly through here. Kim Van Tyne knows he's living on the edge of a potential disaster. This is a choke point for the creek, and the choke point is the worst thing that can happen. If the debris or trees fall into the creek, it instantly plugs and then it floods. Environment Canada says rising temperatures over the weekend accelerated the snowmelt. We saw temperatures in that Cache Creek Kamloops area climb above 30 degrees even, setting a new record on Saturday, for example. Resulting in several BC rivers to rise. We've seen the other rivers, the Bonaparte River, for example, which uh, the Cache Creek flows into, that's come up again today. These residents brace for floods every year now, and every year Van Tyne worries about his collection of vintage cars. It's been a scramble a few years now trying to get the cars off the property because the water was coming up so quickly. Uh, some of them were underwater in 2015. Pleading for the government to take action. Whether it's a bridge or a bigger culvert or some other solution, I'm not certain, but we'll get that figured out in the next few months. A promise residents say they'll believe when they see it. Kamal Karamali, Global News. And meteorologist Yvonne Shell joins us now with more on that. Yvonne, temperatures are set to rise again. Uh, which areas will experience the heat? So if it'll be for the southern interior, that's where we're watching it very closely, uh, even continuing from tomorrow all the way in towards our Thursday. We'll still see that bump in temperatures, upper 20s for many areas, and likely the peak of the heat could be on our Thursday. A bit of a reprieve with the change in the forecast will come Friday, but we're still watching it very closely in the coming days, taking us in towards our Thursday. In comparison, though, along the south coast it'll be cooler temperatures just into the 20s but with it with the rising temperatures the heat that we saw over the weekend as well as the rising rivers we're still keeping the flood watch for the Nazco River areas rather the lower Thompson those are the areas that may exceed bankful so there is a bit of a reprieve on the way but we still need to get into towards the coming days I'll have more coming up very shortly so all right thanks Yvonne traffic was backed up on highway one in Abbotsford this afternoon after a truck struck an overpass and the incident was caught on camera. In the moments leading up to the collision, a truck carrying what appears to be equipment heads east toward the Pierdenville Road overpass. When the truck drives underneath, it strikes the overpass, causing debris to fall and hit a nearby vehicle. BC Highway Patrol says there were no injuries. Traffic was down to one lane eastbound. Commercial Vehicle Safety Enforcement also on the scene and charges are being considered under the Motor Vehicle Act. Coming up, BC Hydro's power play. We know that the way our customers are using electricity is changing. How the energy supplier could change what it charges for electricity depending on when you use it. Plus, a tentative agreement to get federal workers off the picket lines and back on the job and why it won't help you get your tax refund faster. Crews are on scene to a pickup truck with a flat tire here on the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. It's southbound at the north end in the left lane. Select Sussex Insurance and make a difference. When you renew your auto plan online, select your neighborhood Sussex Insurance when prompted, and a donation will be made to Diabetes Canada. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. Time is running out for public feedback on a BC Hydro proposal that will allow some customers to fundamentally change the way they pay for power. As Richard Zussman reports, the system would change hydro rates depending on when the power is used. This thing. Firing up the oven, washing the dishes, drying clothes, and now plugging in your car. 
They all take up energy. But what if changing your routine saved you money? We know that the way our customers are using electricity is changing. And one of the things that they want are more options. BC Hydro's in the midst of considering non-mandatory opt-in time-of-use rates. The proposal suggests hydroelectricity rates remain the same from 7 a.m. until 4 p.m. Then they go up by 5 cents per kilowatt hour during peak times from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. And it is an optional time of use rate and we know it might not be ideal for everyone. The rates would go back down to normal between 9 and 11 p.m. then drop 5 cents per kilowatt hour overnight between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. Essentially giving people more choice means that people can sort themselves into the usage category that fits them best. The main reason it's being considered now because of these electric vehicles. And as more people arrive home after work, they will plug in and put significant pressure on a grid system that may not be able to handle it. The ideal grid system, which is the cheapest to run, is one with relatively flat demand. The issue, of course, is our consumption is not flat. Ontario currently has PQ's pricing in place, but what they have there is consumers opt in but struggle to actually change their behavior. There's a five cent reduction in off-peak times, but there's a five cent increase in peak times. This means that you'd have to shift more than 50% of your load. With so much growing pressure on the electricity grid, it could be a matter of time before this being optional turns in to mandatory. One day with the way energy is shifting, we, we might see future changes. The BC Utilities Commission is currently reviewing the possible change and is not expected to make a decision until next year. Richard Zuspin, Global News, Victoria. A tentative deal has been reached between the federal government and most of the Public Service Alliance of Canada to end a nationwide strike. The collective agreement includes a wage increase and a one-time lump sum payment for members approaching retirement. But as Grace Key reports, remote work will not be enshrined in the new deal. I don't want to be told how to collaborate. I think I've figured it out for myself. Last week in Delta, some Public Service Alliance of Canada members spoke out about the importance of being able to work from home. My team is spread from Winnipeg to Victoria, and the only way I can collaborate with my team is virtually. Yet I have to go into the office two days a week and sit at my desk on Teams just as if I were at home. The union and federal government have reached a tentative agreement on remote work. It's out of the collective agreement. According to a union statement, a letter of agreement requires managers to assess remote work requests individually, not by group. And a response must be in writing. I think where the union has won is that they, the, the government has agreed that there just can't be a blanket policy organization by organization and that this ought to be discussed at the level of the workplace. And I think that's a major stride forward. Professor Everett Lindquist with the University of Victoria School of Public Administration says it was a reasonable agreement for everyone, including taxpayers. I think from the standpoint of taxpayers, do you want every single concern or case to be grieved, which is very expensive and costly, both to the union and to the government? Or would, would we rather see a high proportion of those that are discussed reasonable arrangements 
are worked out that are fair to other staff. With more employees turning to remote work as a way to balance home life and avoid a long commute, it's an agreement other unions, both in the public and private sector, will be keeping an eye on. In addition to this, we're creating a, a joint committee, uh, which will hopefully uh, work towards resolving future issues. And this is the first time we've really negotiated this. So uh, it's, it's a, a foot in the door for the next round. Both sides will review the directive on telework. It was last looked at in 1993. Grace Key, Global News. Researchers at Simon Fraser University walked out today to protest what they call inadequate federal research funding. Science guides us through the ages. There's more than minimum wages. Their message to the feds, pay graduate students and postdoctoral scholars a living wage. They say the student researchers haven't had a raise in 20 years, despite inflation and the rising cost of living. The SFU protest is part of a large-scale walkout at universities across the country. We want to support our graduate students with a living wage. We want to keep everybody funded in a way that they can focus on the fantastic science they do and not be worrying about where their rent money is coming from, where their food money is coming from. We cannot rely on the fickle nature of charitable donations to feed students. We need immediate support now. Student researchers also walked out at UBC, the University of Victoria and UNBC. Up ahead, Canada's most wanted. If you see one of these individuals on the cutouts behind me, Call 911. 25 suspects you should be on the lookout for, including number one from BC. And how the province is spending $10 million to help you get outside and enjoy nature. Good evening and good news over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Traffic is moving well both ways across the bridge deck and no delays even on the east-west connector through Richmond. Select Sussex Insurance and make a difference. When you renew your auto plan online, select your neighborhood Sussex Insurance when prompted and a donation will be made to Diabetes Canada. Interest you in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. The BOLO, or Be on the Lookout program, a nationwide campaign to catch fugitives wanted for violent crimes, has released its latest list of Canada's 25 most wanted. As Global's crime specialist Catherine McDonald reports, the number one suspect is wanted for brazen shooting at a soccer field last fall. Today will have been Edwin's 50th birthday. And instead of enjoying Edwin's party for him later today, I will be visiting him at the cemetery. Edwin Alvarado's widow, daughter and stepson are still devastated after the 49-year-old husband and father was shot to death while refereeing a soccer match at an indoor sports complex in North York last Thanksgiving. To the man who took Edwin's life, you destroy us. You destroy our family. His family speaking publicly because the man wanted for the second-degree murder in the death of Alvarado and the attempted murder of two other players that night, 19-year-old Christian Kuzum has the dubious distinction of being named the most wanted fugitive in Canada by the BOLO or Be on the Lookout program. Mr. Kasum rightly takes the new number one spot today. In a news conference held at Dundas Square, life-size cutouts of the 25 suspects wanted by the BOLO program and police forces across Canada were on display. It was around 10 p.m. Uh, in June, quite warm out, still light out, 
Uh, and it's quite fortunate there were uh, that no one else was struck by any of the gunfire that erupted. Number five on the list is Karash Parzam, wanted for the first-degree murder of 28-year-old Kian Hosseini, shot to death outside Shepherd subway station last June. And thanks to Crime Stoppers, you can do this without ever speaking to a police officer, without ever going to court, without anyone ever knowing it was you who called in that tip. Since Bolo launched five years ago, 250 billboards have been purchased, 600 tips have been received, and of the 46 suspects featured, about 40% have been captured. This is a case that, that really should shock Torontonians. Alvarado's family and investigators are hopeful that arrests are made and soon. Please, please, anyone who knows anything, just, just call. Catherine McDonald, Global News. And number two on that BOLO list includes, uh, is BC man Robbie Al-Khalil, a convicted killer twice over. Police say the 35-year-old is considered a leader of the Wolfpack Alliance crime group. He's been on the run since escaping custody in Port Coquitlam last summer. Al-Khalil was convicted of first-degree murder in the 2012 slaying of longtime rival Sandeep Dure. He was already serving a life sentence for the June 2012 murder of Toronto of Toronto's Johnny Raposo. The B.C. government is providing $10 million to help fund outdoor recreation with the establishment of a new endowment fund. Provincial officials acknowledge the most, that most recreational infrastructure, like trails and park access, are made possible by volunteers. Now, community-based groups can apply for grants with the Outdoor Recreation Fund. The fund will also go towards supporting recreation education and Indigenous collaboration. The fund will also help sponsor reconciliation with Indigenous communities through their involvement in planning and management of, uh, of sites and trail infrastructure projects. Since the pandemic began, BC has seen a surge in the number of people who are keen to spend time enjoying nature. Coming up, 104 and still going strong. why there's no stopping this BC veteran who's already raised more than $300,000. Plus, fighting to save football. SFU athletes pull something special out of the playbook, hoping it works. All right, time for a look at our weather forecast. I'm still reminiscing about Saturday. <laughs> so nice, Soph, right? Mm -hmm. Just a little taste of what's to come. More of that, please. More of that. Yeah, we had a bit more cloud cover through the day today, but it's brightening up. We're still tracking the heat, especially for the southern interior. I'll have that coming up in just a moment, but it's beautiful out there this evening. We are seeing a mainly cloudy sky. Temperatures are at 13, but a bit of a blip in the forecast. We can see that on the satellite and radar. We've got a wave of rain that's just working its way along the west. We're seeing that in towards the Fraser Valley, and it'll be showers this evening, and then hopefully more of a clearing on the way overnight tonight. With it, a few fog patches will be for tomorrow morning, and then once we get past that, we'll rebound. We'll be back into some sunshine and it'll be pleasant through the day tomorrow. This is the plan for Metro Vancouver with many areas, especially away from the water. We'll be back into the low 20s. Some of the nicest days this week will be for Tuesday and Wednesday. And the heat, if you're in the interior, will continue all the way in towards our Thursday. Coastal areas will bump up to 11 degrees inland, low 20s, sunny and dry for both the northeastern corners of the province, central interior near Quinell, getting up to 24 degrees. Some of the warmer temperatures, though, that we're continuing 
something to watch, especially with the freezing level, the rising rivers and the snowmelt increasing. We're still seeing those temperatures getting closer to 30 degrees. That's in towards the Thompson Okanagan as well as the southeastern corners of the province. Whistler highs up to 24 degrees. We will have some fog patches for the south coast for the morning hours. It'll brighten up as we get in towards the afternoon. Highs away from the water for the Fraser Valley getting up to 25 degrees. Tuesday, Wednesday, sunny and dry. And then a bit of a change on Thursday. We could track the return for some wet weather on our Friday. All right, tonight's weather window, a great shot that was taken from Chequemus Canyon. This was taken along the Sea to Sky Trail by Adam. So beautiful. Thank you, Yvonne. Well, players at SFU's in, on SFU's football team, I should say, were in court today for an injunction against the school. They're seeking to stop the university from cancelling the football program. That decision announced last month. Our Madagahi is live with more on what stakeholders want to see happen with the program. Imad? Yeah, Sophie, there wasn't enough time in the day for the judge to make a decision to determine the future of SFU's varsity football program after a full day of hearing arguments from lawyers, both representing the players and the university, trying to argue what should happen next here. Now, earlier today, this was a full courtroom of young football players, their friends, family and supporters all hanging on every word as lawyers argued the court injunction applied for by the players to keep the program alive. Now, last month, SFU announced it would be discontinuing its football program effective immediately while facing uncertainty after the NCAA Division II Lone Star Conference they play in announced it would drop SFU from its league. Uh, the school's lawyer says its hands were tied as the Texas-based conference made the decision to drop SFU because of the team's poor performance performances and uh, travel costs for other teams having to come to SFU to play games. Remember, SFU is the only Canadian university to compete athletically with American schools. Meanwhile, the players and their lawyer argue SFU's decision to cut the program without sufficient notice breaks uh, up a contract that it had with its student athletes when it recruited them and they do not have a complete confidence the school tried its best to find a new league for them to play in. We take it into the next level that we can, which right now is the courtroom. Um, we need somebody who has a say in what's going on right now because clearly us as players and our coaches haven't been given a voice. And so not only is that hurting, but um, I think it's also telling. This doesn't just affect us, this is affecting the whole community and that this is something that if changed will benefit all of us. Now, in the absence of the program, SFU has promised those players their athletic scholarships for the time that they uh, study at the school. It is offering some mental health support and some resources for those players that want to transfer, but it seems all the players really want is their team and their season back. A decision is expected later this week, Sophie. All right, we'll watch for it. Thanks for that, Ahmad. Squire Barnes is here now with a look ahead to sports. Big change for junior hockey in BC. Yeah, Junior A, the BCHL has decided to cut ties with Hockey Canada. It's really about us providing a good opportunity for Canadian kids. Now, one of the things this does is it allows players who are under 18 from other provinces to play in the BCHL if they want. That's something Hockey Canada wouldn't allow. Also coming up tonight, 104 laps for every trip around the sun. BC veteran who just can't stop raising money.
Just before we get to Squire Barnes, breaking news, the loss of a legend in Canadian music. The load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more, the and the Fitzgerald weighed empty. Gordon Lightfoot has died at the age of 84. A representative for the family says the musician behind classic Canadian ballads like If You Could Read My Mind, Sundown and The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald died tonight at a Toronto hospital. Lightfoot rose to fame in the 1960s and his songs have been covered by countless artists. The cause of death is not immediately available. To use a music term, he is an evergreen. His songs will last mm, they will. forever. The soundtrack of Canadiana. Well, yeah, but I mean, there'll be, there'll be young kids who will listen yeah. to it down the line and they'll like it. Trust me, they will. Because they're great songs. Uh, they are great songs, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, let's give a little shout out to Seattle and hockey because Seattle's hockey teams are actually having a pretty good spring. The Thunderbirds are up 2-0 in their series in the Western Conference Final against Kamloops. And of course the Kraken, a race of defending champs last night in Colorado. Now, maybe they'll have a Vegas 2018 type playoff run. Now, you could see Florida beating Boston, which also happened yesterday. That's a huge upset. But the Panthers were the best team in the regular season last year. But Seattle beating Colorado was just flat out a surprise. I mean, we've, we've heard it since September. Um, we've heard it, you know, everybody waited throughout the regular season as we went to different points in the regular season for our group to go away, to, to fall off. But we're not going to go away. I mean, we, you know, we, we have substance. Um, you know, we, our team has played very similarly throughout the year. Now, in many ways, it was Matthew Kachuk who led Florida to that huge upset over Boston. And I know it's old news, folks, but every time I see Kachuk doing something like that, be it when he was with Calgary or in Miami, all I can think of is this. With the fifth selection, Vancouver select from the London Knights, Ole Ulevi. The guy in the old Canuck t-shirt, he knew. He knew it should have been Matthew Kachuk. Now, in order to keep Leaf fans from the uh, Florida Panthers home games in this series between Toronto and Florida, which will start tomorrow in Toronto, the Panthers are only going to sell tickets to American residents. But, of course, entrepreneurial Floridians could just buy tickets and then sell them to Toronto fans who will probably pay anything to get in the building. Calgary fired head coach Daryl Sutter today, but this really wasn't that surprising. The uh, Flames, of course, missed the playoffs. They're looking for a new GM. He'll want a new coach. And a lot of the players in the exit interviews were apparently not very big on Sutter's leadership this year either. So the BCHL has voted to leave Hockey Canada. This is a big move, and it also means a lot of things are going to change within the BC Hockey League. The goals in entertaining BCHL hockey are still going to be on full display, but come next season, it'll no longer be played under the Hockey Canada umbrella. This after the British Columbia Hockey League's Board of Governors voted in favour of severing ties with Canada's amateur hockey governing body following years of frustration pertaining to the eligibility of out-of-province players 18 years or younger wanting to play hockey here in BC. Well, first of all, it's been a long time coming. We've been... Uh, trying to get a dialogue going with Hockey Canada for five years on college tracking hockey and the, the growth of, of Junior A. 
Last year, the British Columbia Hockey League submitted a 35-page document to Hockey Canada outlining the inequalities it faces. It also wanted Hockey Canada to recognize the multiple paths available for a player to seek a college education, but the report fell on deaf ears. So now the BCHL will run as an independent league. For us, it's about giving Canadian players the option of, within their country, being able to move to a really good environment like the BC Hockey League. The players from around North America and the world, they'll come later. It's really about us providing a good opportunity for Canadian kids. League rosters must also have a minimum of five BC-born players. The BCHL has also secured its own insurance to cover players and teams. The one area of concern is officials. On-ice officials are certified by Hockey Canada. And there's already serious anxiety in the officiating community that Hockey Canada won't look favorably towards officials working games in a non-Hockey Canada sanctioned league, with the repercussions being no university, major junior or international hockey games officiated. We don't want that to happen. Uh, if that's what Hockey Canada chooses to do, uh, then that's, that's really their call. Uh, our belief is that the officials should be able to referee and lines our games. And at last check, the Devils are leading the Rangers 2-0 after two periods. That's game seven, winner plays Carolina. There you go. All right, thanks, Squire. Welcome. Up next, the centenarian walking circles around the rest of us and how he's doing it for the kids. Jordan Armstrong is standing by with a look ahead to Global News at 11. Jordan? Sophie, it's a question being asked around the province tonight. Why does this keep happening? We're talking about trucks hitting overpasses. As you know, it happened again today, this time on Highway 1 in Abbotsford. Tonight, we have some startling new numbers on the scope of this problem. It's happened 15 times in 14 months. And it turns out one lower mainland company was involved in a third of those collisions. We'll tell you which company that is, plus hear from the Transportation Minister and the BC Trucking Association at 11. Sophie? It's very puzzling indeed. All right, thanks for that, Jordan. An Oak Bay centenarian is looking to set a new personal best during his annual fundraiser. The year he turned 101, John Hillman made headlines for walking 101 laps around his courtyard for the charity Save the Children. Following year, he did 102 laps and last year 103. As Kylie Stanton reports, now at 104 years old, Hillman is at it again. After 104 trips around the sun, a few laps here should be a breeze. Much like he's done his whole life, John Hillman just plans on putting one foot in front of the other. I have no reason for being 104. No reason at all, except that I, I'm living and I'm going to do my best. This is the fourth time the Second World War veteran is marking his birthday with a fundraising walk outside his Oak Bay retirement home. He, he did it at 101, again at 102. And last year, when he turned 103 raising a total of $333,000. The goal this year, especially fitting. Well, I hope to raise my total, which is 104000 But if I can go higher than that, I'd love to go to a million. He's well on his way, with more than 20000 already donated before walking the first lap. 
but will go directly to the Canadian charity Save the Children. I've had my life and I'm looking forward to helping some little kids along the way. This is incredible at his age to be out there and just caring about the future of the world and taking care of children is remarkable. Well, thank you. For Hillman, it's the circle of life. Lovely. And there's inspiration at every turn. Out of breath a bit, but I'll keep going. Over the course of 10 days, every mark on this chalkboard will bring him closer to the finish line. I'm so proud of him. Oh, it's wonderful. We're so enthusiastic. With 10 laps down and 94 to go, Hillman is showing no signs of slowing down. Already looking ahead to his next birthday. Will we see you back here next year for 105 laps? You never know your luck. <laughs> Taking it one step at a time, it will be a piece of cake. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Wow. We love him. <laughs> All right, well, happy birthday. John Hillman, and good luck to you. Uh, final word on the weather, Yvonne? A few showers this evening, a bit unsettled, uh, some fog patches for tomorrow morning, but then a clearing is on the way. It'll warm up away from the water or into the low 20s for both our Tuesday, Wednesday. Get out and enjoy those days. A bit of a change for Thursday, Friday. Look ahead. All right, that's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for watching, everyone. Good night, all.